0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker
1: and best-selling cookbook author David Levovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Every kid in my generation owned a copy. And when you'd go to a kid's birthday party, they would have had one of these cakes baked for them. Part of the joy of it was like, what are you choosing on the playground? Like, are you getting the pool cake? It was the joy of the joy and the pain of having to just choose one every year and then going and seeing like, how that was interpreted by that family.
0: You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm Editor in Chief Matt Rodbard here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel.
2: On this episode, Matt speaks with Odette Williams, the author of Simple Cake, and to Austin Bush, the author and photographer of The Food of Northern Thailand. Austin's also written and photographed a few stories for taste over the years. But Matt, let's talk about Simple Cakes. What makes Odette's cake so simple?
0: Well, this book is basically making the argument that you only need 10 basic cake recipes, Odette shows you how to mix and match these base recipes with toppings and decorations, whether you're making a decorated birthday cake or just sprinkling some powdered sugar on top and snacking on the cake while it's still warm. We've all done that, Anna.
2: We have. It's great. You need, you need a good snacking cake every once in a while.
0: Got to go for the snacking cake, yeah.
2: And Austin, of course, we love Austin. He's written for taste. He's the photographer of the Pockpot Cookbooks yeah. by Andy Ricker.
0: Yeah, stick around for the Austin Bush interview. Uh, Austin has lived in Thailand for almost 20 years. He speaks the language. He's traveled extensively through the region. And I think I've gone on the record, and if not, here we are on the record. I'm going to say The Food of Northern Thailand is my favorite cookbook of 2018. It is remarkable. You need to buy it. I love it.
2: It's a good one. In the meantime, here's Matt with Odette Williams. Odette Williams. <laughs>
0: Odette Williams, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
1: Ah, oh, thanks for having me.
0: It's been so great picking through your book, Simple Cake. I I want to hear a little bit about just really what got you interested in baking.
1: Well, um, I would say what uh, what got me baking really was the fact that when I was growing up in my household, there was nothing sweet. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was like out of desperation, I would come home from school and and I didn't want a Vegemite sandwich. So oh, We have
0: to talk about that, so continue.
1: Yeah, we have to get back to the Vegemite. Yeah. Um, and so I would be like rummaging around for something sweet and there wouldn't be anything. And so I somehow managed to figure out how to make cake batter. And so I would just make the cake batter and I'd just eat it. I wouldn't even bake the cake. <laughs> got,
0: you were like before cake batter was a flavor of ice cream, yeah. And was that's so cool, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And because in Australia you didn't have all those crazy ice cream flavors no. or cake flavors, yeah. it was like. And then I, you know, I got so good at it that I just like managed to even scale a batter. So if I just wanted like you know, a cup of batter (laughs) 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 for afternoon tea. I'd just be able to make it, eat it, and and so I think that I just had like this it was the simple ingredients that were on hand at home Uh that I could access that then kinda led me to cake. And you were crafty too. Yeah, I must like
0: <laughs>
1: Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, the only other sweet thing in the house was vitamin C. So, you know, like, <laughs> I was like, all right.
0: <laughs> so tell me, growing up in Sydney or in Australia, are you, you grew up in Sydney?
1: I kind of grew up all around Australia. I was born in Newcastle, which is like two hours north of Sydney. Yeah. And then we moved to Canberra and then we went to the West Coast for four years yeah. and then... Back to Sydney Ended for Sydney, Ohio, yeah, the, the most of my life.
0: Tell me, what was it like growing up? Um, I want to know what dessert was like is like in Australia. I find it really fascinating. I've traveled there and I've had um, great desserts there and pastries, but you've got obviously a very strong British influence, yeah. but you also have proximity to tr- the tropics, so you've got tropical yeah. fruit and you've got a lot of you know Asian yeah. um, inspiration. So, what is it like um, there in terms of baking?
1: I mean. I think that, I mean, Australia just has great food. Like Mm -hmm. the produce there is so good. I think it's like the equivalent of like your California. Sure, definitely. Um, And I think also too um, Australians love bread and do bread really well. So there's like a lot of bakeries, like a lot of independent bakeries that say bake their own bread and then they'll offer like a small selection of sweet, you know, baked goods and coffee. So, and there's definitely the English influence. Like they're much more, I think, aligned to like what is like the tea cake or um, a Devonshire tea. Um, And it's like I think that with Southeast Asia, I mean, you get like all that yummy stuff that isn't so much baking but you get all Mm. the sweet rice puddings Mm. and the coconut milk and – and I think also with fruit, you kind of get the pavlova and you get all those like amazing fruits, like passion fruit, which is like it costs See, a fortune to get here.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, and that's something that we've only been doing in the States for like a decade or a decade and a half, but it's been in Australia for a, much longer, yeah. it seems.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that was the dessert of everyone's childhood, really. At Christmas time, yeah. you know, you would make the pavlova, you'd have the whipped cream, you'd have all the, you know, the fruits on top.
0: God, pavlova is such an underrated cake.
1: It really, it really is. And actually, Kelly, my editor, and I, when we were like, yeah, really narrowing down the ten cakes, I really advocated. I think we've got to have a meringue in there because mm. it is the, it's a true celebration cake. You know. So
0: I want to get into the, the the format of simple cake because it's really it's really smart and I've not seen it before. So you've got ten bases, uh, base cakes, and you've got fifteen toppings, and you can interchange everything. Explain how this works.
1: Yeah, well, I guess the concept really is if you know these few things, you know a lot. You have like a great arsenal, and none of them are particularly complicated. And I think that once you get familiar with that recipe, it becomes like a lifetime friend. So you can turn to it and know what it's going to be and know you can do it. And I think by bringing in the options and like containing them, it gives you confidence, mm-hmm. I think, in an area where some people get a bit unraveled.
0: So what are some of the bases? Take, take us through a few of the, your favorites.
1: Well, I mean, the, there's all the usual suspects. Yeah. You know, like it's like chocolate. You know, and it's a chocolate cake that doesn't require any fancy equipment. It doesn't require beaters. If you've got two bowls and a whisk, you can pull it off. Mm-hmm. And it's got like some serious shelf life. And it's also, I think, like like a lot of the recipes in the book, it's got wiggle room for people to, you know, maybe not get things so yeah. precise. Um, like, for instance, if you're using the flour, you could interchange it. You know, if you wanted to, if you looked in the pantry and you only had all-purpose or you had cake flour, mm-hmm. it's still going to work.
0: Oh, that's good to know. And, and tell me, um, with chocolate cake, what are some of the toppings that we can put on there?
1: Oh, my God. Where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: I'm, I'm asking you to pick your favorites well, it's hard
1: I think that actually what I really advocate for in the book is that my favorite topping on a cake is actually dusted confectioner's sugar
2: mm-hmm. because
1: I think it's the simplest it's um, not too sweet you know like it's the cake base is good enough on its own that if you just cut that cake just even slightly warm and it's dusted with confectioner's sugar like that is my happy Let's place. Let's let the
0: cake speak.
1: Let it speak,
0: because a lot of times <laughs> we spend all this time making this great cake.
1: It's true, and, and then you like it on. you destroy it with like fifty percent buttercream. Yeah, and I really, actually, and that's that's something that I I really, you know, out of all that cupcake era, that I I was really turned off in the end, the cake to buttercream ratio. Completely, I thought this is kind of getting a bit obnoxious. Yeah, like, you'd
0: have like an inch of cake and yeah, then would be the topping. Yeah, and yeah. the
1: cake would be stale underneath, yeah, yeah, you know. And yeah. so I that whole balance is like I find that kind of cake not it's not my kind of cake. No definitely. I really just want simple, delicious homemade cake. And I think that like that's why confectioner sugar or like some whipped cream on the side and and I'm a hundred percent behind like cutting it warm like uh-huh. not even waiting for it to cool because that's the thing when you put on buttercream and other things yeah. you gotta wait for it to cool and and look I know I'm boo-hooing the buttercream but I do actually have a really good I'm buttercream. sure you do it's I have a good buttercream recipe in there that's got some mascarpone in there to like cut through the sweetness
0: I like your style give us a <laughs> few more of these 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 fundamental cake bases that we're gonna cook through in simple cake
1: all right well there's a vanilla Of course, because vanilla is like the queen, the queen of like Mm -hmm. flavors in baking. Um, And then there is a really lovely milk and honey cake, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of not your typical honey cake. Honey cake is usually like super sweet, Mm -hmm. pretty rich. um, And so I've kind of like thrown in some buttermilk to kind of cut through it. Yeah, sure. Um, So it's just light and lovely and fluffy. And then you've got, like, your classic olive oil, um, you know, an apple cider cake. Oh, good. Or, Thanks. like, full. I mean, kind of got the seasons covered. And um, the other great thing about the bases is they can then have, like, variations. So within this framework of these 10 cakes, I give you these ideas where you could explore or play once you kind of have your confidence up. And then I also kind of give you like a range of um, pan sizes that can work. So, you know, you don't have to do it one particular way. There's like variations here and I'll tell you, you know, you'll get this amount or it's kind of just um, I think once you understand the, the, the cake, then you can play yeah. um, and get a lot of things from it
0: uh i want to hear uh, a little bit more about vegemite vegemite <laughs> um so listener yeah. i'm not going to forget about that question it will be the last question <laughs> but i want to hear about weekly children's birthday cake book this this yeah. um, iconic australian Children's book that inspired you. I, I looked at it on Amazon. It was published in 04. Is that true, or is that was that a reprint?
1: No, that's a reprint. I think it was published probably in uh, nineteen eighty. Oh,
0: that's why it looks so cool. Yeah, it's ah. like it's it's
1: it's got retro now. It looks
0: awesome.
1: It's never gone out of fashion in Australia. It's like <laughs> it's still like probably the most sold cookbook in Australia. But that's actually was um, that was like a huge influence on my relationship with cake. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was growing up, that book was sold a bit like a magazine was at a news agency. It was really cheap, very accessible, and every kid in my (laughs) generation owned a copy. And when you'd go to a kid's birthday party, they would have had one of these cakes baked for them. And so part of the joy of it was like, what what are you choosing on the playground? Like, are you getting the pool cake? Or oh, you getting the are you getting the, you know, the, the rabbit cake or the number cake or I was trying it was the joy of having to the joy and the pain of having to just choose one every year and then going and seeing like how that was interpreted by that family. Oh,
0: and the pressure is on oh for, my god, the, the, for the parents who are making the cake. Oh
1: my god, well I say in the back of Simple Cake <laughs> I have like all the all my childhood stories of my dad trying to pull these cakes off oh. for me. And, um, but the, so it was, it was really like a, a source of like joy in my childhood, like in something that I, a book that I returned to consistently, um, like months. I was so excited months in advance before my birthday. I would go to that <sighs> so, book
0: that's a cool and start
1: like flicking through it. And then I, um, and then I also think as I got older, I, when I moved to America, so I moved to America because I met my husband who is Australia. I met him in the bookstore that I was working Uh-oh. in. <laughs> and then I, um, I came here and I, I really only bought a backpack and, and I shipped over a box of books um, that I just had to have with me and that book, that was one of, that that was that. One of them. Mm-hmm. And um, Nick has two older children and they were very young at the time and I used to say to them... Choose a, choose a cake and I'll I'll bake it for you. And so I started that tradition oh, again fun. over here. I brought it here with I, me.
0: Food media in Australia is so cool, and it, it it's it's much more. It's consumed in a different way. I feel like you could buy cookbooks at the grocery store. Yes, and there's many more magazines per capita yeah. than, than anywhere, right? In yeah, in Australia and in the UK too. But we'll just focus on Australia.
1: Yeah, I, mean, is I, I think that like Australians are passionate about food. I think yeah. that, I think, I don't know whether it's a weather thing and that we spend a lot <laughs> of time outside entertaining sure. and, but there's such amazing food in Australia um, and, I think that they're very passionate about cookbooks and about buying, like, Delicious magazine or Gourmet Mm -hmm. Traveller or just keeping abreast of, like, what's happening. And even though it's a very small market, it's, like, a super loyal market.
0: We have a lot of readers from Australia. Shout out to you, Australian readers. And we see them responding. We don't cover Australia enough, so I think it's pointing what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, even just this book, even for this one Kate title, to have the traction it did back in 1980, to have mm. now sold like a million copies. Yeah, it's crazy. And to have that like cultural, it's culturally embedded in my entire generation. I mean, it's it's kind of phenomenal. Are, we gonna,
0: are you going to do that for the US audience? Oh my God. Book?
1: Well, actually, that's what I originally pitched to I I had originally pitched, because I'd said to Nick, my husband, uh-huh you know, this book just needs to be redone. Like, it's so great because how the format is and how I kind of got the format for this cake is it has one cake base, two toppings, and then all these, like, designs that you can make from these, like, three core recipes. And... And it was, and that's what empowered people, yeah. like to be able to pull it off. And to be honest, even if you didn't use that plain butter mm-hmm. cake recipe, you could just buy a packet cake and pull them off.
0: Yeah, I love it. I see the the thread now. It's very clear. Yeah. Um. Let's get into nuts and bolts. Do you cook by volume or weight? Is it, it like I know that's always an issue with yeah. baking books. What What's yeah. your format? And what's your style?
1: Well, it's funny if you had spoken to me. Before the book, I wasn't so pedantic. Yeah. You know, I was much more fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of baker. Just from years of having baked cakes, I had a kind of confidence there to know what I was doing. But um, through the process of writing it and and wanting to teach people and make them feel confident pulling these off, I got pedantic. Yeah. So I really now, like, wait you know, wait for flour.
0: You have to. I'm, I'm so glad the wind-up was for that answer because I would have been like volume. You yeah. have to have weight for, for baking. You it's do. It's so important.
1: No, you really do. And and I think um, one thing that that I'm really kind of conscious of for people at home is for years I baked without a scale. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't have digital scales. Mm-hmm. Um so in the book, I really try and help them to understand how I measure my flour without a scale. So basically what I would do is I get my you know flour from, say, in my King Arthur uh-huh. um, paper box and I get my spoon and I'll fluff it up and then I'll just scoop it into the measuring cup and then I'll, then I'll swipe it off any excess with a knife and I won't compact it, I won't bang it down. And if I do it like that... So you guys listening at home, <laughs> this is how you do it. Yeah, yeah, Because <laughs> yeah. this is actually really important. It's so important. If you do it like this, you won't overpack your measuring cup with flour. And that honestly is like the biggest downfall to how cakes go wrong. If they have too much flour, then it's they end dry. up being like dry and dense and they won't have enough liquid in them. And so, you know, that method of well, I know that this has been really popular in the past, but where you get your measuring cup and you scoop it in the flour box. For cakes, I don't think that works. No. It's too heavy-handed. We
0: as home cooks pack everything in because we assume more is better. Yeah, no. But that's not the case with pastry.
1: No. For, for these cakes in simple cake anyway, I'm going to say... Better to err on the side of having a little less flour in. You might have to add a couple more minutes onto your bake time because there's maybe a little bit more liquid in the cake, but you just don't want to do that. So, like, if you just measure out your flour, and if you don't have a baking scale, that um, but that's like a way to
0: do it. It's the worst case scenario because honestly, buy a digital scale. Uh, they cost literally Nothing. $17 yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. It's a really good one. Yeah. We've written about it on Taste. We have a great article about buying a digital scale. And if you're baking cakes, it just makes your life so much It's just easier to use.
1: It really is. And look, don't be intimidated by the tar button as well. Like, I think that's why also like, people stop because they're just not even quite sure how to use yeah. a digital scale.
0: I think it's like um any it's like riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Or actually that's but riding a bicycle is so much harder. It's like literally <laughs> it three times yeah. you use the tar button. Yeah. um which is a basically leveling off your weight. So if you're doing multiple putting multiple components, it levels levels levels. So yeah. You're not over measuring. But once you do it like three times,
1: Yeah. you've got it. You have it. And I even think guys that like even if you Measure it out once, then you visually have seen what a cup of flour looks like. It's in your memory, it's in yeah. your muscle memory about, oh, okay. And that's with all of the cakes, actually, as you go through them. Once yeah. you do it once, then you become fluid with it and you'll go, oh, it looks a little, this batter today looks a little thick. I'm going to add, you know, like a tablespoon more milk to it. Or, oh, it's, you know, it's it. you, you get to know the the consistency or the measures and, or you'll think, Oh God damn it. I didn't pull my butter out early enough. It's too cold. I'll just beat it in, you know, the beater for like, five more minutes and, you know, get it softer.
0: Yep. You'll figure out the tricks. And I think it's, you use the word habit and, and, and getting used to these, these kind of ideas of in, with home cooking, we drill home at taste because I think if you set aside like Friday uh, mm-hmm. evening or Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon to make a cake yeah. three weekends out of the year, you would, or out of the month, you would actually see yourself, it's just like, it a, becomes a habit, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I also think too, the great, Thing about cake is, and these cakes is that it really doesn't take long and it doesn't cost much. And you know, usually within an hour, you've got delicious cake. Oh, it's amazing. You know, like, and it doesn't have to be just for birthdays. I mean, you know, I was eating cake batter after school, so I'm giving you full permission so to have it 365 days of the year.
0: <laughs> uh, last question. Let's get back to the Vegemite sandwich. Yeah. Okay, so we as a culture, I think, are going more towards the umami flavor and mm-hmm. bitter flavors and salty flavors. Mm-hmm. I think Americans typically have been have had a sweet palate, but I'm pretty sure in the next decade or so, we're going to be switching over to um, umami. So mm-hmm. the question is, will Americans ever love Vegemite?
1: Oh, God. No. <laughs> they really won't. You've, you've got to grow up with it because it is such an acquired taste and it's so salty. I mean, when my kids were young, I forced Vegemite on them so that they actually, like, grew up with that in their palate. <laughs> but I think also, too, a lot of people don't know how to use Vegemite. Yeah, I know. I think they use it like other spreads like peanut butter. Mm. Big mistake. No, you gotta let the butter do its work. It's it's a and then you just like smear it on, just ever you know. It's such a
0: good combo. I love Vegemite. I love it. Oh, Odette Williams, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Here's Matt speaking with photographer and author Austin Bush.
0: Austin Bush, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I've followed your work uh, through many of Andy Ricker's books to start. hmm Pock yep. Pock. Yeah. Pock Pock Drinking Food. Yep. Uh, and then, holy shit, I received your book. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this book is very different, and I love it. So, congratulations on it.
3: Thank you. That's also not fair because I haven't seen the book yet, but I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> no, your book, the
0: food of northern Thailand. Oh, my
3: book. Sorry, sorry. I thought yeah. you were talking about Andy's new no, book. No, no, your book, the food of northern
0: <laughs> Thailand. Okay. I know yeah. you have another book that we'll talk about later. That sure. uh, a popcorn noodles book, but mm-hmm. no, your book, the food of northern Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, I must say, I've said this, I think, on the podcast, but it's it's probably my favorite cookbook of 2018.
3: That's that's awesome to hear. Thanks a lot, man.
0: Um, you're welcome. It's true. Uh, what I like about it is it, it blends um, your just incredible eye for a reportage photography and your talents with uh, with this deep, deep, deep research and interest in the cuisine and the people. So I wanted to ask you, first off, um, tell me a little bit about your life, because I I think it's really fascinating um, how you've lived in Thailand for so long. So how did you get into this? Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, So I've been in Thailand a long time now, uh, 20 years, um, which is kind of crazy, because when I was younger, I really had no interest in Asia. I hadn't spent any time there. Uh, It was kind of coincidental. I got a scholarship to go to Laos in Thailand when I was like a junior in college, and that was my first time there. I just found it kind of interesting. And then when I went back to school my last year, I was studying at U of O, University of Oregon. Uh, I saw that they had Thai, like as a topic. And I took Thai for a year there.
0: The language of, like the, Thai the, language. Yeah, yeah,
3: the language. Um, and it was really intense. Like we had like four or five teachers. They were very enthusiastic. I think I learned to read and write Thai in like two weeks or something wow. like that. And liked it. I've always liked languages. And at the end of that year, I got a scholarship to study Thai at Chiang Mai University in northern Thailand. And I basically have been there since then.
0: Wow! So you you started in Thailand as a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, were you working? What were your first jobs in Thailand?
3: Um, so yeah, when that that was like one term uh, studying Thai, and then when that was over, I did what a lot of people in Thailand do, which is uh, a lot of foreigners in Thailand, which is teach English. So I did that for like three or four years, which was cool, but I never meant to be become a professional teacher. Mm -hmm. But it's cool because, you know, you get lots of long holidays and I was always kind of interested in writing photography and food and things like that. So I would get a long holiday and go to Cambodia, take a camera and eat a bunch of weird stuff. Or I would go to Vietnam or I would go to Laos, you know, and did a lot of travel to, over that period. And I think that kind of kick-started my, my interest in in food and, and in that region.
0: So you were uh, always uh, shooting? You always had a camera in your hand?
3: Yeah, just for fun. I never thought I would do it, you know, for work or whatever. Yeah. But, but yeah, I w- I've always sort of been interested in it.
0: Okay. and. I mean, you clearly made a jump, though, because you aren't an amateur photographer. You have, like, a really clear style. Um, you you just you know how to process. Where Did you ever train as a photographer?
3: No, not like I, – I didn't ever – I never studied photography in school wow. or anything like that. But over the years, especially, like, early on, I was lucky enough to work as a, an assistant to a couple different photographers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the coolest times was this guy call, called uh, Eric Valli. He's a French photographer, and he's done, you know, articles in, in National Geographic – And one thing that he did was these, um, in Southern Thailand, there's these caves where swiftlets, these little birds lay, or they create these nests and they make them out of their saliva. Mm -mm. And those, have you ever heard of this? Mm -mm, I haven't seen it. Bird
0: nest soup? Yeah, I know that. I've heard it. Okay. Yeah.
3: So it comes from um, basically hardened um, bird saliva. Yeah. And there's guys that. Climb in these caves and, and chip the nests away and then sell them at a really high
0: price. Yeah, place. I've seen those. Andrew Zimmer did a segment on that Oh, one. did he? Yeah. Okay. Wow.
3: So I got to work as an assistant to this photographer when he was doing uh, that project, and it was totally, it was amazing. It was really fun. And
0: What's it smell like down in one of those caves? It's pretty gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> like
3: we, uh, I remember being at the mouth of one, and you know, in, in sort of corresponding with him before this trip he was like, have you done any rock climbing? And I had done like a tiny bit at like a rock climbing gym or something like that. And he's like, we got at the mouth of this cave and he's like, OK, just go. And, and I had to like belay myself down, which I was not entirely confident of doing. He had to show me how to do the knots and stuff like that. And I reached the bottom of this cave and it was just like a mountain of bat shit. Just like, I mean, it was probably hundreds of feet high or something. Oh, it looked my like a, God. You know, like a child's
0: drawing of a volcano or something. Yeah. Of bat shit. <laughs> wow, man.
3: It was insane. Yeah. And it, and it smelled
0: pretty strong. Uh, what other stories were you assisting on before you actually went on
3: your own? Um, I think that's the only kind of big assisting thing I've done. But I've gone to like workshops here and mm-hmm. there and stuff like that.
0: OK, so let's uh, jump forward to uh, your book. You wrote a story for taste kind of about the uh, the process uh, to create the food of northern Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first thing you did was buy a truck.
3: <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. What was that all about? Well, I knew that. I wanted to go 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 deep and, you know, go to sort of obscure places off the beaten track. Uh, and to do that, I knew, you know, I'd have to have my own wheels. You can't really do that in public transportation. Mm-hmm. And I'd be carrying a bunch of photo equipment. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I just knew that was one of the first things I had to do. So I bought a truck and I was also, I'm, I love cycling. So I was able to throw my bike in the back yeah. and occasionally I would ride, roll up somewhere and, and be able to go for a bike ride as okay. well. Okay.
0: So you kept all your gear, but you traveled around in this, this – you ended up buying a truck mm-hmm. um, for how long?
3: So I actually – I went halves on the truck with Andy Ricker, okay. and he let me use it for like a year, and then I sold my half back to him. Okay. So the better part of a year, a little bit longer than a year, I spent most of that year uh, just driving around northern Thailand. Wow. Um, and I have a little sort of like portable – um photo studio that I took with me Yeah, I throw that in the back seat and uh, yeah I would some take the train up to northern Thailand go get the car at Andy's place and just you know drive around for a couple of weeks and um, I forget how many miles I did it was a lot uh, a lot of it pretty fruitful you know found some really interesting stuff yeah. dishes I hadn't seen before villages I hadn't been to before Sometimes a lot of dead ends, <laughs> a yeah. lot of driving and, um, you know, rolling up in places where uh, I couldn't exactly find what I was looking for. But.
0: Okay. But you were methodical. Was there a grid me- a moment or were you uh, were you just driving? How'd that work?
3: Uh, kind of methodical. Yeah. Um, you know, especially in the beginning, I wanted to be very sort of efficient about doing it. So I was relying on friends, parents mm-hmm. of friends, restaurants that I was already familiar with, um, places I'd already been. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that was like relatively kind of planned. But, you know, as I talked to these people, they would be like, oh, yeah, in the next village, they do this. Mm-hmm. You should go check that out. Oh, I see. And, you know, I'd follow that lead.
0: And to know you, you are fluent in the language. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's obviously incredibly helpful.
3: Oh, it's it's absolutely necessary in this yeah. case. I mean, I, I would have to have hired a translator or something. Yeah. Um,
0: You're a white dude from Oregon. You show up to a rural village in, in northern Thailand. Uh, and you start speaking in a tongue in, a, in a, with a dialect uh, mm. or an accent that you know uh, was twenty years seasoned uh did, were people like holy shit <laughs> like, were the people kind of stunned, <laughs> yeah, occasionally because I went to some pretty remote places, yeah, um you did,
3: and yeah, there's like places that most tourists, foreign or domestic don't go to, so people were like really surprised, but more so like kind of like confused (laughs) like why does this guy want to know you know how we cook you know baby frogs (laughs) or you know why does he want to know about this dip like they just couldn't wrap their heads around it right but at the same time they were really like kind of impressed that someone from outside clearly an outsider was interested in their in their stuff yeah and that really that really shone through like people were so generous and so nice and like so kind of um enthusiastic to show stuff
0: yeah, it's very clear in the book uh, that you – there was a mutual respect there with your subjects, uh, the the folks you interviewed, um, great stories. I wanted to hear a little bit about homestays mm-hmm. because that seemed to be a, a reporting technique that you used uh, for yeah. the book.
3: Yeah, 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 it was. A lot of the recipes came from those and that's because um, – I would hit up restaurants quite a bit, and most of the restaurant owners in northern Thailand were really generous, and I didn't even have to ask twice. You know, they would just let me into their kitchens and show me exactly how they made these dishes. But occasionally, you know, people don't want to share their their recipes, and that's totally cool. Um, and I, you know, I I write guidebooks for Lonely Planet as well, and I was aware that there there are these little homestays in kind of remote communities in northern Thailand. And I thought that would just be kind of an interesting way to um, get real home cooking as opposed to restaurant cooking, which are, you know, different entities. Um, and also it was – I kind of discovered after doing that a few times that people were not so sort of guarded about their recipes. They were really enthusiastic to, to share them. They loved sharing them, yeah. kind of unlike restaurants. Um, so, yeah, I would drive. I would look, look it up. I would call in advance And they're usually facilitated by some guy, like the village headman or something like that. And I'd be like, hey, I'm this um, American writer, journalist. I'm writing about local food. I've heard that you guys do this dish. I'd like to stay at the homestay, but could you put me with the family in the village that has the best reputation for cooking?
0: What's a dish, for example, Skibwan?
3: Oh, God, what was? I mean, I stayed at... uh, a hill tribe homestay. So in Northern Thailand, there's a lot of different people who, who are not necessarily Thai. And there are uh, a lot of ethnic groups that are kind of grouped together n- known as hill tribes. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in their food because almost nothing is ever written about it. And so uh, I heard that there's one group called the Lahu lived in this village. So, I drove all the way out there and this woman made this kind of amazing dip. It's so simple. It's just... Um, In the sort of coals that the, you know, as the fires died, she tossed in a few chilies and then a big chunk of ginger and grilled that and maybe some shallots, I think, and grilled it until it was really tender and fragrant, peeled all the burnt stuff off, pounded it up in a mortar and pestle and with a lot of cilantro leaves. And then served it with grilled pork. and mm-hmm. It's so simple. Wow, sounds great. It's really tasty, and it was so spicy and, but not necessarily from the chili, from the the garlic. Or I'm sorry, the um, ginger. That ginger sort of spiciness. Yeah, it's really, really tasty.
0: And so, are you asking questions along the way? Are you watching? Um, are you watching her make this? Are you taking video too? Yeah,
3: and that's the challenging part because I wrote and photographed this. Yeah, know.
0: it's incredibly hard.
3: So I would rare. Be, Rare. It was hard. It was like logistically kind of almost impossible at <laughs> sometimes I would be squatting there, you know, taking photos also with a notepad, also with my phone to take video of these kind of complicated techniques and stuff like that. And in the end, I managed to do it. But it was it was pretty hard. And like, I think w- when I was doing that, like, I kind of learned that because I was both writing and photographing one of those things kind of gets compromised. Yeah. And so in general, I'm not so confident in my writing skills and I think I kind of overemphasized taking notes <laughs> and I kind of wish I could go back and have taken a few more photos. But I was very like sort of diligent about yeah. recording. You never
0: know until you do the first one that you know you, how much do you actually need, how much can you report in the secondary moment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear about some of the dishes that you just really adore from the from the region. Like, mm-hmm. what are your what are your favorite foods? Because you don't live in northern Thailand, you live in Bangkok. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. But so you, you you which is much different than northern Thailand. Yeah. But let's talk about uh, some of the northern dishes that you really love. Sure. Um. So
3: there's a province in northern Thailand called uh, Mae Hong Son and it's like in the it's uh, on the on the border with Myanmar in kind of the northwesternmost corner of uh, Thailand and the most of the people who live there are this ethnic group called Shan um and their food is like a little bit closer to Burmese food so it's not very spicy it's very mild um it's kind of oily but in a nice way they love like umami tomatoes like fermented soybeans mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of stuff with rice, like they'll mix it with turmeric and, and, and wrap it in a banana leaf and steam it or roll it into balls with mixed with tomato and serve it with pork rinds. And I just, I really like their food. You don't see it anywhere else in Thailand and it has flavors that really sort of, I like like savory flavors, not sweet at all, very mild, very fragrant. So I love, I love that stuff. I think it's really delicious.
0: I want to know if I'm going to northern Thailand. So say I'm, I'm traveling and I, I, I fly into Bangkok, I spend some time there, and I want to head north. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Chiang Mai is a large city that oftentimes is the center of, of their of a tourist northern experience. Mm-hmm. Um, is that where I should go? Are there other places to visit that you think are maybe better? Yeah. I mean,
3: of course, Chiang Mai is the biggest city in northern Thailand, and it's the good – it's you know the natural starting point. Mm-hmm. And you're going to find a little bit of everything there. But definitely, if you're serious about it, go to some other places. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, another destination I really like is this town, maybe four hours from Chiang Mai, in the opposite direction, going um, east, and it's called Pra. And um, it's northern Thai food, but sort of with an emphasis on meat. So a lot of the most famous like vendors who sell grilled meat or lap or like these meaty stews come from there. And it's a very small town, but it's charming and. I don't know. There's a couple of restaurants there that are that are so good, um, and definitely worth like driving four hours and food that you're not getting anywhere else, even
0: in Northern Thailand. And you could take a bus there.
3: Yeah, you could take a bus there.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your life in Bangkok uh, when you when you weren't reporting uh, the, the the book. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you what are you up to there? So
3: I do a mix of writing and photography. Um, my sort of day job is doing guidebooks. Uh-huh. I work for Lonely Planet. Yeah, and I have since. Two thousand and six, I guess. So I've done like I don't know, like I haven't counted, like at least thirty guidebooks for the planet. Wow. Um which involves going to like a lot of places in mainland Southeast Asia, Laos, Myanmar, Vietnam, um Malaysia. Yeah.
0: What so that's fascinating to me because I've written a couple guidebooks. Uh, one for Brooklyn. The Brooklyn voters. Uh, I did mm-hmm. a couple of chapters, oh, cool. and it's uh-huh. it's uh it's so difficult. It's tedious work, <laughs> it tremendously is. tedious. It's uh-huh. incredibly obviously facts based. Yeah, though you you can certainly put in quite a bit of opinion. Um, but wow, what what is what's it like for you? to so say you're doing a book, is it an update for Vietnam? Like, what does this mean? Yeah,
3: at, at this point, they're all updates. You know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'll roll into a place. I'll do some research, obviously. I'll try and find some local contacts. Um, but it's a balance, you know. I mean, maybe you felt that when you did your guidebook. Like, there's certain places in a destination that are always going to be in a guidebook. It's sort of emblematic of that place. I, being uh, especially interested in food and local food, I really want to steer people towards that. And I think a lot of guidebooks don't do a super great job at that. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a balance, you know, like for Lonely Planet Guides, I will always try and include a couple vegetarian places or, you know, a Western place or quasi Western place because we need to kind of appeal to a wide sort of uh, swath of people. But in general, I try and make a huge effort to like point people towards local food, which it can be hard and intimidating if you don't have a little bit of hand-holding, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of these places don't have English-language signs, so you can't communicate with the staff or whatever. So
0: It must be gratifying to put in a small, like, just couple-owners, tiny place into the Lonely Planet guidebook. Mm-hmm. Like, and you would hope that it would help their situation. It would increase their business, right? Oh, yeah.
3: There, there's a, a restaurant in northern Thailand in this kind of, like, backpackery town called Bai, P-A-I. And it's this town is a huge destination for backpackers. You can get hamburgers there, you can get falafel, but you can't really get northern Thai food, oddly <laughs> enough, except for this one place. And uh, I've been eating there for years, and I wrote it up in the guidebook. And I kind of, I did all these things, to kind of draw people to it. Yeah,
0: the little tricks. I did that myself. Uh-huh. Uh, you just have to really, you know, the language you want to draw them in. Yeah, you know the met the special words. Uh huh. You know?
3: Yeah. 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 So I did that and I hadn't been there for a while and came back and the lady recognized me and she's like, Oh my God, you're back. She's like, um, I'm so happy where we get foreigners here every day. She's like, Look, I got a new roof for my restaurant. Oh my God. That made me feel so good. That's such a good story. Um, but the funny thing was, she's like, Yeah, she, like the restaurant was a bit cleaner, a bit tidier. She's like, Look, we have an English language um, menu on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I looked and they had these kind of like, Terrible pictures of the food. Oh, no, (laughs) yeah. Which, you know, they were trying, but these kind of unclear pictures of the food. And then below it in English was I don't know how to explain this. It wasn't the English language name of the dish, but rather like the transliteration. Yeah. So instead of saying pork rinds, it said kep mu, but in English words, you know. So it really wasn't helping. It was just
0: transliterating the Thai. It's more like point and eat at that point. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Um, but whatever I that, I was so like kind of impressed by that and that, that yeah that made me feel great like I, I love it when I can do that
0: sort of thing so what is on tap for you what other guidebooks do you have lined up and talk about maybe some other book projects you're working on on your own
3: yeah sure uh, I'm in the middle of doing uh, the Laos guide for Lonely Planet right now, which is cool because that's I think the very first guide I ever did, yeah. and I haven't been there back there too much. So since you actually did the guide, so how when?
0: Mm-hmm. Was it, what, what's the time frame?
3: I think I was there in like 2009 or something. Oh wow, uh, so, so ten years. Wow. I've been there a little bit off and on, but I haven't done a guidebook in a while, so it's kind of interesting to see the changes there. And uh, Lao Lao food is pretty similar to Thai food. Mm-hmm. Um, and i i love it it's really really delicious yeah. um so that's that's fun uh, i did the photos for andy rickers soon to uh be released noodle book which is coming out i think in a couple of weeks pretty from
0: soon yeah it'll be out by the, this summer for yeah. sure yeah uh
3: which i i haven't even seen yet so i'm yeah. <laughs> looking forward to seeing that good um And then uh, my next book, I'd like to do one on southern Thai food.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I haven't signed a contract or anything, but I've been talking to my editor and my publishing company, and mm-hmm. I think they like the idea. And,
0: the food of southern Thailand? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it.
3: Following the same format, same aesthetic, same look, um but this what is essentially like a really, really different cuisine.
0: Yeah, and then you'll, of course, go to the islands too?
3: Yeah, yeah. I've been to a couple already. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to put together a good proposal for them. So I did a, a few research trips. Oh, nice. I did an article for Saver in the course of doing that. And uh. I love it. Like, I I love northern Thai food, but mm-hmm. I'm interested in kind of all foods. And southern Thai food is just so, like, kind of – it's the spiciest Thai regional food. It's really, really full-flavored. It's really salty. It's really, like, beautiful. Like northern Thai food is is delicious and amazing, but it kind of it's not very aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> A lot of it's kind of brown or green. Uh, but in southern Thailand, you get like bright yellow from all the turmeric, or red, or you know these yeah. this, this thing called satha, like stink beans that are bright green, and it's really colorful.
0: Are you going to do the same thing? you Are you going to buy a, bu- to buy a, a, a truck <laughs> I don't know. and drive down there?
3: <laughs> I guess so. I haven't worked that out yeah. yet. I'm just starting. But yeah. I think I might have to buy a car and just sort of park it down there.
0: I'm really excited. I, I hope I can come on a research trip with you. Oh,
3: man. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, well, how's your spice tolerance?
0: I, I can handle some spice. Okay. I've, I've, I've done some. I wrote a book about Korean food, so I oh, have okay. a little bit of spice. There but, you go. Yeah. But I will say I, I haven't really driven through Thailand. I've only been to oh. Samui and Bangkok. So. Okay. Austin, you got to show me the way.
3: We'll do it. Um, Yeah, let's do it.
0: Austin Bush, thank you for joining The Taste Podcast.
3: Thanks for having me on.
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.